Welcome to the Relational Grace Podcast, where we feature the teachings of Pastor Nick Harris, who taught us that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. I'm Jamie Russell, Pastor Harris's son. Now, before we dive into this message, let's go ahead and review where we've been so far in this Breaking the Change series of teachings. You may recall the churches in Galatia were founded by the missionary activities of the Apostle Paul. But the believers in that area had turned away from the true gospel message Paul had delivered to them. In fact, Paul said they had turned to another gospel. These congregations had allowed themselves to be seduced into believing that the Pauline gospel of Jesus plus nothing was not adequate to save them. So they decided to adopt a concept of Jesus plus circumcision, or Jesus plus rules, Jesus plus the law. Of course, Paul was amazed by this, and we all should be as well. We should even be asking ourselves how this possibly could have happened, How could these Galatians be duped so easily? The Apostle Paul explains the how of this in chapters 1 and 2 of Galatians. He tells us how certain Christians from Jerusalem had come to the region immediately on the departure of Paul and Barnabas. These men were Hebrew believers in Christ who still hung tenaciously onto their Jewish roots. Paul refers to them as Pharisee Christians. And once in Galatia, these Pharisee Christians had convinced these new believers that Gentiles like themselves could not receive the blessings of salvation unless they first became Jews. That was essential. After all, they claimed the Bible is clear that the blessings of salvation were only promised to Abraham and his seed and no one else. Gentiles like these believers in Galatia could only inherit those promises by being incorporated into the family of Abraham. The only way for this incorporation to occur, these Pharisees thought, was for them to be circumcised just like Abraham who was a Gentile himself at the time of his circumcision. However, that was not all they had taught. They had also taught that anyone who had totally appropriated the promises of God had to rigidly obey the law of God, as given to Moses on Mount Sinai. In other words, they had to at least obey God's moral law, or the Ten Commandments. And whether or not they appropriated the promises depended on their being circumcised and obeying God. The Pharisee Christians were adamant, If the Galatians would first be circumcised, then live according to God's moral law, they would be saved. However, if they broke God's moral law, their salvation would be forfeited. Without question, the Apostle Paul was repulsed by these teachings, and he was equally repulsed by the fact that the Galatian converts had so willingly fallen for it. So Paul sat down and dictated the epistle to the Galatians in an attempt to straighten out this situation. Our text for today represents one of the Apostle's most succinct arguments. Now, if you've listened to this podcast very long, you should begin to recognize the topic of adoption comes up quite a bit in Dad's teachings and in his life stories. Furthermore, you will notice that Dad teaches in what he calls types and shadows. The easiest way of describing types and shadows for me is that a, quote, type is basically an example. Now, a, quote, shadow, on the other hand, is a little different. If you think about it, a shadow has no substance. It is often described in this specific context as a physical form of a heavenly reality. Now I'm going to say that again. A shadow in this specific context can be described as a physical form of a heavenly reality. So back to that word adoption. In this message, Pastor Harris will remind us how the Apostle Paul said that we were adopted into God's family. Just as my dad, whose original name was Lampkin, was adopted at a young age into Mary and Raymond Harris's family. This was a pivotal point in Dad's life, one that would change him and his outlook of what it means to have a true relationship with the Father. 
Many years later, dad would adopt my sister Amy and I as his children into his family, which consisted of he and my brother Deke. I share all this with you to say this. I continue to find it ironic that Pastor Harris, who is always teaching us using fascinating types and shadows, is literally for me a type and shadow himself. From his relationship with his adopted father to his unique relationship he had with my brother, my sister, and myself, I continue to see many unique examples of types of physical relationships that depict a heavenly reality of our adoption into God's family. Maybe a lot of you listening can do the same with your relationship with your earthly father, but I know there's many broken relationships with fathers out there. If that happens to be the case you're in, it is my pleasure to share my dad's story as a type and shadow with you here to help you understand how adoption into God's family really works and what it really means. Okay, so before we get started, I had one additional personal announcement on behalf of my family. For many years, my mother, Crystal Harris, Pastor Harris's wife, has struggled with back pain and various issues that have troubled her for many years. Recently, this all came to a head, and it was time for her to make a decision. Last week, Mom underwent a very intensive spinal surgery, and as of today, August 23, 2022, she's doing great. The doctor said everything went according to plan, and she's been rehabbing well. We would ask for continued prayer for her as she still has a long road ahead learning how to do things a bit differently and such. The good news is that she sure has been walking tall down those hospital hallways, about two inches taller to be exact. I'd like to give a big thank you to everyone out there that has been praying for her and for everyone who has been an encouragement to her along the way. Now, what do you say we get on with the show? Let's go ahead and get into this episode's message. Here's the ninth episode of the Breaking the Chain series titled Covenant Provisions. Let's begin this morning by reading our text, which is found in the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. Very important verses. Paul writing says, Brethren, I speak in the manner of men. Though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now, that's important. Go back one here to 15. It says, Though it be, he said, even if you just have an ordinary covenant, one made between you and me, what does that have to say to us? If it's confirmed, if we have a bond, our word, or if we bleed into one another's veins, whatever it is, if it's confirmed, no one can annul it or add to it. It is a covenant between the two of us. I can't annul it without your agreement. You can't annul it without my agreement. That's the argument here. He said, though it is only a man's covenant, yet, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, plural, as of many, but as of one. And to your seed, who is Christ. Now, as you can see in this verse, the Apostle Paul makes it clear that he shares at least one thing in common with the Pharisee Christians. They can agree on something. He indicates that both he and the Pharisee Christians agreed that personal salvation is directly related to the covenant God made with Father Abraham. See, your salvation, your eternal hope is based upon something that happened in the Old Testament. 
in the covenant of Abraham. In Paul's mind, to fail to understand that fact was to fail to comprehend the plan of salvation at all. Now, please understand this. When Paul would refer to the Abrahamic covenant, he was actually speaking of the New Testament covenant. You see, for him, those two concepts were interchangeable in this respect. The covenant God had made with Abraham and the new covenant were both covenants based upon one thing. And that one thing was grace. That's what they shared in common. They were based in grace. Now, Paul establishes this principle in Galatians 3.6. Now, quoting Genesis 15.6, the Apostle Paul declares this. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. You see, like the new covenant, the Abrahamic covenant which I believe was ratified in Genesis 15, was not based upon what Abraham did. God didn't say to Abraham, Abraham, if you walk like this and you do these things and you don't do those things, then I will keep my covenant with you. No, it is unequivocal. It is an everlasting covenant. It cannot be annulled. It cannot be done away with. It's based upon the faith of Abraham and nothing else. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, in other words, this covenant was based upon the one in whom Abraham had believed, and not upon Abraham's actions. Now, the Pharisee Christians agreed with Paul, and Paul agreed with the Pharisee Christians up to this point. See, they all said, yeah, that's right. We buy into that. But here they parted company. In fact, in Galatians chapter 3, our text, verses 15 and 16, Paul illustrates their differences. He begins with this analogy of a legal uh, agreement. The apostle compares the Abrahamic covenant with any legal contract that is established between two parties. Now, as we know, there are certain elements that are endemic in any contract. For one thing, when any contract is completed and fully signed, it is binding upon both parties, isn't it? You sign the contract, you're required to keep the contract. And for another thing, when this contract is finalized, it can't be altered by either one of the signatories without the express consent of the other. It's, it's between you and I, Caroline. You see, that too is endemic. Now, if we follow Paul's logic here and apply it to the Abrahamic covenant, then the argument becomes crystal clear. In the first place, when God and Abraham established the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 15, they both agreed that the contract they made would be eternal in duration. In other words, and this is crucial, this covenant would always be in effect. And this agreement made no provision at all for any covenants to supersede this covenant. God didn't say, I'm going to give you this covenant now. Then later on, I'm going to give another covenant that will supersede this. And then after that, another covenant that will supersede that covenant. No. He said, this covenant is always in effect. The Abrahamic covenant belongs to you and it belongs to me because it is an eternal covenant. In other words, this great covenant, based on righteousness by faith alone, could never be replaced. We might say that the gift of eternal salvation would be by faith alone. And this would be the case forever. But in the view of the Apostle Paul, 
The Pharisee Christians had attempted to compromise that covenant. As he saw it, they had taken the Abrahamic covenant, and what did they do with it? They tried to inject another covenant into it. They had injected the Mosaic covenant, the law, and imposed it upon Abraham's covenant based on grace and faith, not law. They had chosen to omit the fact that Abraham had believed God and his faith had been reckoned to him as righteousness, not his works. Now, needless to say, because of this omission, Paul viewed the Pharisee Christian position as a violation of God's agreement with the great son of Terah, with Abraham. As the apostle saw it, if God had chosen to add rules and regulations to the Abrahamic covenant, it would have been it would have been out of place. He would have broken faith with a man with whom he had cut covenant. But if God had would and if God would have altered the covenant in some way, what would it what would it have required? It would have required Abraham's consent. But here's the problem. Abraham died four hundred years before the next covenant came along. He died 400 years before the law. So how do you alter a covenant with a dead man? Hello? Can't be done, can it? So according to the apostle, God could not have sanctioned the interjection of the law into this covenant agreement. Can you see Paul's logic? He is so stinking smart. And Now at this point, the argument of the apostle Paul gets a little more difficult to follow. But let's see if... The Hercule Poirot, of all things biblical, can guide you through the wash here. Now, basically, what Paul is arguing in Galatians 3.15 and 16 is this. It takes two persons or two parties to make a contract. Right? The party of the first part and the party of the second part. And in the case of the Abrahamic covenant, Paul sees God as being the party of the first part, and he sees Abraham. Now, this is important, so you've got to listen to Pastor carefully sometimes, because you miss these Herculeparolian statements. And he sees Abraham and his seed. Did you notice that in verse 16? Abraham and his seed as being the party of the second part. God, the party of the first part. Abraham and his seed, party of the second part. So as Paul saw things, God, the party of the first part, had made certain immutable promises to Abraham and to his seed, the parties of the second part. Now, one of those promises was this. Now listen carefully. Abraham and his physical seed alone were to be the beneficiaries of those promises that God had made to the patriarch. Okay? But you see, there's a huge problem with all this. A huge problem. Listen to Galatians 3.16b, the last half of that verse. He does not say, and to seeds, plural, as of many, but seed as of one. And to your seed, he says, who is Christ. Now here Paul explains the major error in the thinking of the Pharisee Christians. You see, the Pharisee Christians, they all agreed that the promised blessings of the Abrahamic covenant belong to the seeds of Abraham. That's what they believe. They said, this belongs to the seeds, plural. They believe that all of the seeds of Abraham had the blessings. In other words, the promises belong to those people who were born Jews or who had become Jews as proselytes. But to all of this, Paul says, wrong, wrong. He says, it is wrong, Paul argued, because when God made this covenant, it was not made with the seeds, plural, 
Not with the seeds of Abraham at all, but with his seed singular. I mean seed as in one. And Paul doesn't equivocate here. As he saw things, only one person was the true seed of Abraham. There was only one true seed. And so, who was that seed? Was it Isaac? Was it Jacob? Was it Judah? Was it David? No. The true seed of Abraham was and is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was and is the true seed of Abraham. After all, he is the one who would finalize the provisions of the Abrahamic covenant by shedding his own precious blood. And what is interesting is this. He inherited all the blessings of Abraham. But do you know, if you read the blessings of Abraham, actually, if you read the blessings and the cursings of the law in Deuteronomy 28, 29, 30, you go back there and you read the curses of the law and the blessings of the law, what you discover is that Jesus didn't enjoy any of the blessings himself. Why? Because the scripture says he took upon himself the curse of the law so that nothing is left but the blessings of Abraham. You and I have every blessing promised to him because Christ took the curse. You say, Pastor, what are the blessings of Abraham? That you'll be first and not last. Ooh, I like that. All of my life, I've wanted to be first and not last. Can't help it. Just an inborn tendency on my part. I used to say I wouldn't give you a dime for a loser. I don't say that anymore, but I used to say that. <laughs> he said we'd be the first, not the last. He said God would bless us in our businesses, in our storehouses. That God would bless the offspring of our flocks. I mean, the promises just go on and on and on and on about what God promises to those who stand under the blessings and not under the curse. But Jesus didn't inherit any of those things. Remember now, the covenant had been given to Abraham and his offspring for this one purpose. It was to release them from the curse. Christ takes the curse and places it upon himself. Now, think back for a moment to our previous studies. Just consider for a moment. Do you remember the sermon I preached on the curses of the law? Those Curses were threefold in nature. There was what? Poverty, disease, and death. Now, I've been victimized recently by one of those curses. It doesn't belong to me, and I don't want it. And I'm believing for perfect health when this thing is over with. Now, but do you see why this covenant could not have possibly applied to Jesus? Because if the curse... Is sickness, disease, and death. He did not need the benefits of the covenant. Because he never violated the law of God. He didn't stand under the curse himself, do you see? All the rest of us stand under the curse. He didn't. Why? Because he was sinless in all of his ways. In fact, it, that is so amazing that through the Christmas season, why is it that we talk so much about the Virgin Mary? Why is that concept so important that Mary was a virgin? Why don't we just say Mary? 
It's because of a promise God made in the book of Genesis where he says that from the seed of the woman would the Redeemer come. Why is that important? Because then as the seed of the woman, he would inherit Adamic sin. Jesus came into this world without the curse of sin being upon him. Therefore, he could take our curse upon himself and bear it so we could have the blessings. (laughs) You with me? So Jesus was not subject to the curse of having violated the law. Let me say it this way. Since Jesus Christ was perfectly righteous from the moment of his conception... He was not subject to the penalty of being found unrighteous. You see, that's what the virgin birth is. Why, way back, when the Apostles' Creed was put together, did they say, conceived of the Virgin Mary? Because those great thinkers knew that if Christ would have had a human father, he would have inherited sin. Therefore, he could not have died for us. He would have had to have died for himself. Only someone without the curse of Adam could take our sin upon himself. As a result, he was not subject to the things we're subject to. He was the embodiment of divine health. He was not subject to sickness or disease. And since Jesus Christ was the author of everlasting life, he was not subject to either death or decay. And since he was the Son of God, he was not subject to any of Satan's devices. Not until. Now there's two big words. Sometimes you really have to listen because I slip stuff in on you. Not until. Now there's two big words. Not until the day when he actually became sin. You see, on that day, beloved, Jesus Christ took upon himself our sickness our poverty, our death. Not his own. He couldn't take his own because he didn't have any. He took ours. This is what the epistle to the Hebrews has to say about this in Hebrews 5, 7 through 9. Who in the days of his flesh, now this is talking about Christ in this human body, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who will obey him. Wow. You see what this passage is saying? It says that Christ took our sin nature. He took the condition of sin upon himself. Now, it should have been us hanging on that cross. Not him. But he chose to take our places upon the cross. He took the penalty that should have been assigned to us, and he was chastised for that sin, even though the sin was not his. You talk about being unfair. This is rightly unfair. But you know what? There's nothing about the gospel that's fair. Every once in a while I say to God, God, that's not fair. And he says, of course it's not fair, you silly ninny. I don't deal with fair. Never have, never will. You see, I love to say it this way. This is so profound. I, I, I thought this up. He became sin so that you and I 
could become sons. Thank you. Now let me ask you this. Do you see the significance of Paul's argument? Here's what this great man is claiming. He's saying that only through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the true seed of God, can anyone possibly become righteous in God's sight. And that was even true of Father Abraham himself. That is why the Abrahamic covenant had to be made with Abraham and his seed. You see, that's why I say the two covenants are the same. Abraham exercised faith and had a righteous standing. Jesus Christ took our sin upon himself to give us a righteous standing. It's one and the same. Even godly Abraham could only receive a righteous standing with God by looking forward to the coming seed. See, the only way Abraham could believe is he had to believe in something. You just don't believe out of nowhere. Does he believe God? What did he believe about God? He believed God when God said, I am sending a son to you. And that son was a type and shadow of the one to come. So by looking forward to that coming son, Abraham was made righteous in God's sight. Woo. Now, <laughs> you see, that's why the Abrahamic covenant had to be made with Abraham and his seed and not Abraham alone. You see, even godly Abraham could only receive a righteous standing by looking for a son, looking to a son. Now, looking at the ability of his future offspring to fulfill God's demands, his law, and by so doing, Abraham was set free from the curse of failing to keep God's statute. In other words, Abraham looked ahead in faith, and God reckoned that looking ahead to him as righteousness. But we have the advantage. What is it they say about hindsight? It's 2020, isn't it? You and I look back, not towards something that is yet to happen, but you and I look back to a completed work. And by believing in that Son who took our place and bore our sin, we receive salvation. We look back upon this awesome seed of Abraham who freed us from the law of sin and death. Now, here's my observation. Without the seed of Abraham being included in this covenant, the Abrahamic covenant couldn't have saved anyone. It had to be Abraham and his seed. Because that's what his faith was all about. But he was included, and this seed has allowed Gentiles like you and me to be a part of the Abrahamic covenant by coming to live in us and coming to live as us. Now, Paul really explains his connection in Romans eight fourteen through 17. Look at this. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are huios, sons of God. Now, that's talking not about straightening out you ladies. Doesn't mean only men are going to be saved. It means the inheritance. The inheritor was a huios. If we are going to inherit, we have to become firstborn sons. Even females become firstborn sons in the sight of God. By what? By faith. He says, for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. How do we know we're children of God? Because God tells us so. That we are children of God, then look at this. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God 
and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. See, when the Spirit of Christ lives in us, when we are dead to self and alive to God, we become God's children. And if we are God's children, then we are God's heirs. But heirs of what? We are all heirs of the promises given to Abraham. The blessings of Abraham. The blessings of the law. They all belong to us. Because the curse has been removed by the Lord Jesus Christ. We are heirs. Wow. Is that exciting? Well, on what basis are we heirs? After all, we're Gentiles, right? You know, some of you out there may be Jewish. I have no idea, but I know I'm Scottish, so I don't, <laughs> I don't think I have anything in me. I don't know. After all, we're Gentiles. We're not the natural sons and daughters of Abraham, are we? So, how do we become? Is it by being circumcised? Is it by adherence to some rule or other? No, Paul says it is by adoption into God's family. That is how the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant become ours. Now, this adoption is not some accident that happens to us. We don't become adopted by accident. Listen to the words of Ephesians 1, 5, and 6. Oh, this is powerful. Having predestined... Now, there's a word that'll set the church on its ear. Having predestined us... Can somebody just say, wow? Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Every single one of you from before the foundation of the earth was chosen by God to be in Christ by being adopted into God's forever family. Why? To the praise and glory of his grace by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. What's the key word there? Hmm, I wonder what that word is. Hmm, five letters. Do we deserve it? Yeah. Have we earned it? No, can't do it. Well, <laughs> don't you love Paul? If he hadn't come along and wrote all those epistles, I'd have done it myself. The news is just so stinking good. Now here once again, the Apostle Paul affirms that we Gentiles are adopted into God's family. That's how we become a part of the seed of Abraham. Now because you and I live in the 21st century, we can't see the depth of what this meant to Paul. See, Paul lived in the Roman world. His world wasn't like our world. It was a world dominated by the Romans. And contrary to what many may think, the basic unit of Roman society was not the state. See, that's a mistake a lot of people make. It was not the state. It was the family. And the family was based upon a concept known as the patria potestas in Latin. Patria potestas. The concept can best be defined as the absolute power of the father. We have no idea in our society how powerful Roman fathers were. A Roman father is so powerful that he held power over his family for as long as he lived. And he was so powerful that he could sell his children as slaves if he wanted to do so. 
In fact, he could even put them to death without legal retribution. If he decided you'd be better off dead, he'd kill you. Nobody'd come after him. Why? Patria potestas. These are my kids. I do with them as I please. A father was so powerful that he could arrange a marriage for a son and daughter when they were six or seven years old without the consent of the child. As a matter of fact, let me give you a little historical sidelight, being the Hercule Poirot of all things. That, that was the case when Julius Caesar, you all know Julius Caesar, great friend, arranged the marriage of his seven-year-old daughter Julia to ten-year-old Brutus, who was the son of his mistress Servilla. Now, when Caesar reneged on his promise and gave the glorious Julia to Pompey Magnus, the love-crazed and permanently ugly Brutus, though very young, began to abhor and loathe Caesar. And that abhorrence was what led to the plot that killed Caesar. Brutus was the last one to thrust his sword. And of course, we hear the words of Caesar et tu, Brute. Because the odd thing is, most people believe that Brutus was the natural son of Julius Caesar. Caesar always saw after his career. Only he didn't see after his bride. In Rome, there are actual instances of a father condemning his son to death. For example, the historian tells how uh, Alice Fluvius joined what is known as the Catiline. I don't know whether you know about the Catiline conspiracy to overturn the Roman Republic. And on his way to join Catalina, he was arrested and returned to his home. And his father immediately said, kill him. And at the gate of the house, he was thrust through with a gladiator's sword. That was the power of the Roman father. Now, here's another thing about families and adoption in the time of Paul. Under Roman law, a child could not possess anything. If an inheritance was given to him or her, even as a gift, it was taken over by the child's father. In the case of a son, it didn't matter how old the son was or what his station in life was. He could be seated in the Roman Senate. And he could even be a consul of Rome. But he was still under the absolute authority of his father. So in a world like this, with those kind of rules, adoption into a family was a serious thing. But it was also a frequent thing. It was especially common in aristocratic families where no male heir had been birthed. The worst thing that could happen to a Roman was for his family to be extinguished because there was no male offspring in that family. So an aristocrat would go to a family that had a number of sons. And he would pick one that wasn't the eldest, but he would pick a son that seemed to have promise. And then he would offer a large sum of money to the father to adopt that son that he had picked. If the father agreed, the money was paid and a certain ritual was observed before the adoption became legal. And this ritual involved the use of a measuring scale with iron balance weights. The medium of exchange was copper. Interesting. I don't know what it means. Twice the natural father would sell his son. The other father would be on the other side of the scales. The one wanting to buy the son say, I will give you 300 talents of copper. The father said, no, 600. 450. Deal. Then the father said, no, wait a minute. That's not enough. 
So they'd back off. They'd start again. They would do this twice. Second time, they would settle upon the price. But the deal was still not yet finalized. No matter where he lived in the Roman Empire, the adopting father had to go to the Roman Forum and appear before an officer of Rome known as the Urban Praetor. He was the third most powerful man in Rome. And as this adopting father stood before the Praetor, he had to plead his case for wanting to adopt this son. If the Praetor agreed, the adopting father would then declare before the Praetor that this adopted son was now his legal heir. He was his huios. He was his firstborn, even if he hadn't been born to him. By adoption, he became his heir. And some of the wealthiest men in Rome received their sons in this fashion. Papers were drawn up then and put on file in the Temple of Vestal Virgins. Did you know that's what their temple was? It was a repository for legal deeds. Now, obviously, this adopted son had all the rights and privileges of a legitimate son. But he lost all rights into the family from which he had come. What does this say? You and I have been adopted in the family of God. We are heirs. Everything God has is ours. Why? Because the curse has been taken off of what's not ours. It's been paid. We are severed completely from that old family. From that vicious father, Jesus talked about you. When he said to the Pharisees, he said, you are of your father the devil. They said, he said, you still belong to that old family. But you and I, beloved, we've been adopted. We belong to the family of God. Now, the key to this history lesson. I know you're saying, would you get with it? Well, the key to the history lesson is this. Everyone in Rome, including both his new family and his old family, saw this adopted son as being a new and different person. It was just as if he had been born again. It's just as if he had become a new, you're saying it, a new creation. All things had passed away. All things had become new. He was a new creation by virtue of his adoption. And beloved, that is exactly what Paul says God has done for you and me. He's adopted us. He cut a deal when Jesus was on the cross. God took our sin and gave us his Holy Spirit. And we are adopted into his forever family. At one time, we were under the absolute power of our natural father, Satan. This evil father abused us, tormented us, and took advantage of us. But one day, God sent his grace and offered us adoption into his family. And immediately, those of us who accepted the invitation became his heirs. Now, what does he ask from us in return? Nothing. That's what's so amazing. God, why would you do this? Because I predetermined before the foundation of the earth, you'd be mine. Now, he asks us for nothing. Not circumcision, not rules. Just a willingness to accept our adoption. You all know I was adopted when I was three and a half years old. I've told you that so many times you're sick of hearing it. But I was. And I'll never forget the judge calling me up. And he set me on his knee. And he said to me, what is your name? 
And I said, Nick Lampkin. He said, no. He said, that's your own name. You have a new name. He said, your name is now Nick Harris. I have bestowed that name upon you. I have the authority to do that. Did you know that little man? I didn't understand authority. But I knew it was something important. And then he pointed down. He said, you see that man sitting right there? I said, he said, who is that? I said, that's my Uncle Raymond. He says, no, that's your father. You have a new father. In that instant, I became a new creation. I had a new father, a new family, a new name. <laughs> I became a son of James Raymond and Mary Jane Harris. I ran into my natural father one time. I was 18, 19 years old. I was debating at uh, San Diego State University. Looked up and I saw a guy come in the back door. He's wearing blue jeans, cowboy boots, more gold than a Jerusalem jeweler. And a uh, cowboy hat, shirt unbuttoned down to here, big old hairy chest. I spotted that guy and I leaned over to my debate partner and I said, I think my natural father just walked in. He said, how do you know? And I said, I don't know. He said, have you ever seen him before? I said, no. But I said, I think that's him. When it was over with, I, I didn't look at him like Kept looking over, but I could see in my peripheral vision, and I saw him working his way down. He comes up to the front, and he said, Nick? And I said, yes. He says, I'm your dad. And I said, uh, no, sir. I said, you're not my dad. I said, my dad's in Waxahachie, Texas. Now, you can be my friend if you want to, but you can't be my dad. That's how real adoption is. I had a father. Where my old one abused me, my new one loved me. That's the same thing God has done. He's taken us out of that place with that abusive father who sicked such things on us like alcoholism, drug abuse, stealing, broken marriage, placed us into his family so that you and I might become more than conquerors to him who loved us. Isn't that good news? And that's my teaching for this morning. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. If you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to connect with Aerial Ministries on Facebook and Instagram and subscribe to our email list at aerialministries.com. That's Ariel spelled A-R-I-E-L. We look forward to keeping you updated on upcoming episodes and projects. If you would like to support the missional efforts of Aerial Ministries in Thoraka, Kenya with Each One Feed One, we'd like to remind you that 10% of all donations to Aerial Ministries will support this missional effort. 
Visit aerialministries.com give for online donations and other methods of giving. To learn more about the Tharaka mission, you can visit aerialministries.com missions. You can also listen to episode 26 for a deeper dive into how our relationship with Each One Feed One and the McCarter family started over 35 years ago, where we are today, and where we're headed in the future. 